Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Tyler Ralston, clinical psychologist located in Honolulu, Hawaii. Tyler has come onto the show today to talk about guilt and trauma and work that he does. And Tyler, super psyched to have you on the show. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Aaron. I'm excited to be here. First off, tell us a little bit about yourself and your work and how it ties into what we're talking about. Well, uh, I'm, a, as you mentioned, a clinical psychologist, and I have a private practice that I work at. And uh, in the practice, I treat um, exclusively traumas and anxiety disorders in uh, adult women. Most of the trauma I treat is in formerly battered women, uh, women who've been in abusive relationships that have been abusive or manipulative or coercive in one way or another. You also have a a book on this topic that you've uh, co-written. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. um, It was published in 2008. It's called Treating PTSD in Battered Women. Uh, I'm the second author. The first author is Dr. Edward Kubaney. And it's a very comprehensive treatment manual for therapists and counselors that was developed from a protocol um, that came out of a bunch of studies, mostly at the National Center for PTSD in the late 90s and early 2000s, and uh, over, over a bunch of years with formerly battered women. And the treatment is very comprehensive. It includes modules on treating guilt, uh, negative self-talk, uh, assertiveness, and a whole variety of other areas. Yeah, that sounds really amazing. And um, I know that the treatment for trauma and PTSD can be pretty complicated with the various different kinds of uh, methods that you can go about treating it and would love to hear more about that. In fact, maybe we'll have you back on a show just about trauma and PTSD. So today, I'm interested really in guilt, and I know that that plays a big role here. Uh, I know you talk about that in um, the book as well. So let's just maybe give us a an overview on what's important about guilt here, and why are we interested in that? That's a great question. Um, guilt has historically been a little underappreciated as an outcome from traumas. And um, in, in the more recent years, it's become increasingly recognized that guilt is basically a life wrecker and uh, is very prevalent in um, the symptom presentation that many people who've experienced traumas. You know, there's varying prevalence rates and stuff depending on the population, but uh, estimates for formerly battered women in, in the 50% to oh, 66% or so experience moderate or higher levels of guilt. Is there a difference between trauma-related guilt and just guilt as a phenomenon on its own? Yeah, there's a bit of a difference. There's a lot of overlap, of course, but when we're looking at trauma-related guilt, there's so many other symptoms that come out of trauma, and when people are experiencing guilt uh, related to traumas, it often acts as a block that keeps other symptoms in place and can even feed the other symptoms, can feed depression, uh, can feed some anxious arousal uh, type presentations and stuff. So, um, whereas in other types of guilt, uh, you know, a guilt that I forgot to pick up uh, juice on the way home or something like that, it's really not going to be at that clinical problematic level that's going to feed a lot of other symptoms. But there's a lot of overlap, of course, too, in kind of the conceptualization of how the guilt, the mechanism of guilt and how it works, whether it's low-level non-trauma-related all the way up to very high-level um, trauma-related guilt. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because um, when we think about PTSD and the symptomatology involved with PTSD, the hypervigilance, the um, irritability, the you know the re- recalling, uh, remembering disturbing aspects of the events, all of those are very salient. But from what I recall, at least in, a, in many of the previous diagnostic criteria for PTSD, you don't often see guilt spelled out. Right, but it seems like it's really an important piece of uh, PTSD and trauma. It is, and fortunately, in the latest uh, edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual (DSM-5), guilt has become uh, more. Uh, it's actually like a, a formal symptom now. Um, in this category of changes in cognitions and mood, guilt is. Um, one of the things that's often represented there. Um, I wanted to add also, jumping back just a moment there, that um, a lot of times when people are experiencing guilt, they, you know, they're, they're thinking they should have or could have done something, this sort of a thing. 
related to some trauma. And when they do that, it stirs up a lot of negative emotion. And the negative emotion is paired with the memory of what happened. And in doing so, it's, it's, a, it's something called higher order language conditioning. Um, they're reconditioning inadvertently, reconditioning themselves to have distressing emotions tied with the memory of the trauma, which is exactly the opposite of what we try to do in therapy. But without therapy, people often have uh, upset related to traumas go on for years or decades um, because of this process. You know what would be really great would be sort of like a real example of how that might play out for somebody. So you're sure. saying that the cognitions around guilt, the thoughts you have get paired with an emotional experience and so and then connect with memories of the trauma. So like how, what would this look like for a person who's experienced a trauma? For example, in my practice, I, um, I treat a lot of formerly battered women. And for a woman who's, uh, let's say, out of a relationship already, and the guy's like in prison or he's moved away or something, and she's left with all these memories of the things that he did to her. And of course, memories can be just sort of come up in our mind, you know, for no apparent reason, or, or often they're brought up when we hear a certain song or a smell a certain smell or go to a certain place or drive by somewhere that um, is somehow associated with something that he did. So let's say she uh, is reminded in this way of something he did and because there was so much distress associated with those things and because she has guilt, one of the ways that this plays out is that she may go, oh, you know, when she's remembering, she may think like, oh gosh, I I shouldn't have done that. I, for example, I shouldn't have moved in with him. And when she's remembering what he did to her after she moved in with him, and she's telling herself or thinking, I shouldn't have moved in, and of course the trauma happened, she's really guilting or blaming herself because, you know, it's, it's not nice to have somebody else tell you what you should have or shouldn't have done that might have, have you know, different outcomes. And um, so it's very upsetting when she thinks in those terms, I should have done something else. It's very, very upsetting. So just thinking that way is like criticism. And, it, and internally, it steer, stirs up a lot of negative affect or negative, negative emotion. So are you saying that the, then the thoughts then are getting associated with the emotions and that's what makes it more yeah. of a... Yeah. And, and maybe that's one of the... I think what you're saying is that's the difference between that and maybe your sort of... Uh, garden variety guilt didn't pick up the forgot to pick up the milk at the grocery store there's not a lot of affect associated with that so it it doesn't really go anywhere probably not yeah yeah it's 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 much lower level another way that i think about it sometimes is like a karaoke singing karaoke the karaoke um the the video on the screen might be like the trauma and then the words to the song that one is singing is like the the internal dialogue about the trauma and it's like, oh, I shouldn't have moved in with him. I shouldn't have dated him. I should have seen the signs. I should have left sooner, et cetera, et cetera. And that kind of language stirs up negative emotion while you're watching that video. And it's just going to repair those two or reassociate those two and usually maintain it, if not increase the distress um, over time. Right. Okay. What does guilt do in a person's personal experience? How does it affect people functioning? and how they're managing their life. Guilt is far-reaching. It uh, often will increase depression. Uh, Their mood will, if they don't have formal clinical depression, there's bouts of down mood, uh, lowers their self-esteem, heavily related to shame, numbing, so that they just kind of experience less emotion altogether. Sometimes somebody's guilt is so strong that their ability to experience very high emotional, pleasurable or positive emotional, um, such as joy and happiness and stuff is greatly diminished. And sometimes the negative emotions such as uh, deep sadness and uh, and then the crying and things like that, um, sometimes those go away as well. And sometimes people get so numbed out, they're just, just kind of going through life, um, not really feeling or experiencing anything, just in, in numb mode. And there's varying degrees of that, of course, but uh, guilt feeds that big time. So uh, do you see in your clinical practice that, let's say somebody has uh, depression or anxiety or any other numbers of uh, psychological issues that they're dealing with that actually working on the guilt piece of it helps those improve? Oh yeah, big time, yeah. 
um, in, in order for people to grieve the losses that come with so many traumas, it's important to work on the guilt, which acts as sort of this protective uh, barrier almost, or f- well, really feeds the numbing. And if, if we want to, a, a person can't grieve a loss if they're numb. And so before we can do some of that, we like to address, or I like to address the guilt to get that to sub-problematic levels or totally gone. Uh, so let's talk about yeah. that for a moment, because that's very interesting. It sounds like what you're saying is that the guilt gets in the way of people being able to grieve or to process or deal with something that's happened for them that's been traumatic. Yes, that's correct. And why is that? Yeah, uh, guilt prevents grieving. Um, one of the ways that it does this is that it acts as kind of this block that feeds numbing. And if a person is numb, they can't grieve. And uh, so there's, there's variations of that, but um, an, another aspect to that is this idea that when people are experiencing guilt, they are almost always, you know, trauma-related guilt, they're almost always remembering their role in the traumatic event inaccurately, at least to some degree and often to a large degree. And so if they're remembering their role in the event inaccurately, it ends up kind of cycling around between the guilt, often there's some anger, uh, not always, but the guilt and the numbing and the asking, why did this happen and why did I do what I did and I shouldn't have done that. And this cycle happens and it's, they can stay stuck in this and not move forward. But once the guilt is out of the way, then they can truly grieve in an accurate way what's happened. Uh, and that may be a short grieving or it may be a very long grieving. Uh, and it often facilitates then moving forward. Right. So that makes sense. And I believe it was in the book where you talk a bit about the guilt model and the different components of guilt, which seem to me like when you're talking about getting stuck in that mode of thinking about things inaccurately, there's components of, of that that you discussed with Dr. Cubaney. You want to spend a little time on those? Because I think those are super interesting and would help give a better idea about what goes into the guilt. Yeah, sure. It's um, I would love to talk about it. Um, and uh, it's an area in my practice that I just really uh, very much enjoy working on and, and almost always can see people, their burden just becoming a lot lighter by the time we're done working on the guilt. So, you know, guilt is, as we conceptualize it, is really a two-part experience. There's a strong emotional part that is usually some kind of a negative emotional experience, distress, sadness, something like that in the negative realm. And then there is a cognitive component. In simple terms, we can say is a belief that oneself either should have or could have thought, felt, or acted differently. And often often it's thought and felt differently, or, or I should have acted and thought differently. It can be a combo of any of that, but there's always going to be these two parts. When we look more specifically at the cognitive components, there's four interrelated cognitions that any of the areas that have a uh, error in them can cause problems. And in order for it to be guilted, only, we only need to have an error in one of these four interrelated areas plus the distress, and we've got some guilt going on. So the first one that we often will talk about when we're working on guilt is these ideas of foreseeability and preventability. And um, the second that we often work on, this area of lack of justification. The third area is errors in thoughts about responsibility. And the fourth area is um, this idea of wrongdoing. And a person only needs to have a thinking error in any one of these conceptual areas for it to be guilt when it's coupled with the distress. Right. I bet that with a lot of people, they have all four. They do. Yeah. So let's talk about each one of them, because I think they're all really interesting to the model. The first one was foreseeability. Is is that hindsight bias? It's related to that. Yeah. Um, A lot of times if there's a, for example, in a trauma, if there's a negative outcome and a person is beyond the negative outcome in time now, in other words, they're they're past it in time. They know how this negative outcome turned out. Let's say it's a, a broken jaw because of a ex, you know, a boyfriend, uh, they know how this turned out. Because they're looking back and they know how it turned out, the mere knowledge of knowing how this turned out automatically tends to bias or distort what one thought they knew before that outcome was known. So in the broken jaw examples, the patient might say, Dr. Ralston, he hit me and he broke my jaw. I should have known better because when he came home and he was drunk and in a bad mood, 
I could have foreseen he was in a bad mood and I shouldn't have agitated him. Would that be an example? Yeah, that is an example. And um, so when, using that example, when, when somebody's thinking that way, they're remembering that negative outcome as if it was foreseeable. And in their mind, often, if it was foreseeable, then it was also to some degree preventable. Mm-hmm. And that will feed guilt right there. Further complicating it a bit is that if it was then preventable, and yet I was there, sometimes one's actions uh, or thoughts or emotions played a little bit of a um, sort of like we can think of it as like a domino in the causal chain of events. Uh, unwittingly, it's not like they were trying to cause it or anything like that. And that feeds even more guilt. And I, I want to be super clear that by no means ever do I think that domestic violence is caused by the victim. Right. When I just said that, I don't mean that at all in, in that way. All I mean is that, oh, you know, I was, um, I was in the house and I went into that room where he was to get something I wanted to get. And that's where he was drunk and he punched me and broke my jaw. That's, that's what I mean by right. that. So that's, that's, yeah. that's the person having a belief that they were responsible for causing it by being there and they should have not been there. I mean, that's, that's the foreseeability I, part, which of course we're saying is, is not rational and nobody. Well, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's usually signals that kind of thinking signals hindsight bias. And many people say, Oh, I should, I, sh- I should have known when he came home and I could smell alcohol on him. I should have known when he, he was in the bedroom. Uh, I should have known not to go in there. And unfortunately, um, you know, a lot of even psychologists who don't uh, treat trauma or guilt will feed into that kind of a belief system. Um, I've had many, many, many people come into my practice who have had other healthcare professionals, whether it's a primary care doctor or or uh, another psychologist or whatever, feed into that guilt by saying, "Oh, well, you know, you shouldn't. Have, you should have left the relationship when the first time that he said something nasty to you, or these kinds of things, which we know is just not going to be helpful and is technically not even accurate." So, th- would would that be like blaming the victim? Yeah, it is. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So when we look at the hindsight bias, hindsight knowledge is essentially knowledge of an event's outcome biases or distorts. Biases or distorts what one thought they knew before the outcome was known. Mm-hmm. So, that, I mean, mm-hmm. just to just to do sort of a silly non-trauma-related example, that would be sort of like somebody making a huge bet on something on a football team winning, and then losing the bet, and then the next day saying, "Why didn't I see that uh, the quarterback's wrist was injured? It, I, I, I should have I should have not bet on that football team because." The wrist was injured. Right. But of course, they didn't know that until after the game. Well, that's right. That's right. And so when we're doing trauma work on this, one of the things we do is look in great detail at the um, what we, we call the, the guilt incident um, that happened. The guilt incident debriefing is what we call it. And we're really looking at who said what, who did what, who went where. I mean, all the variables, the story in great detail leading up to the point in time at which the person thinks they should have done something differently or known something or felt something different. And um, when we do that, we often see really clearly that they did not know until after the traumatic event, mm-hmm. until after the, the, you know, the, the thing that they think they should have known. Well, what's, so what's another example? Can you? I know we don't want you to use real patients of yours in your practice, but just like if you were going to imagine like an example of the foreseeability and the hindsight bias that would come up and you would help that person see that thought or belief system is irrational. Yeah, I could give you uh, an example like that. I could also, I could give that and I can also share with you one of the original studies that was done in 1974 or 75 that illustrates this. Uh, would you like me to share that? Sure. Yeah. The study was, I think, by Fischoff and Fischoff. And, you know, with, without going to all the details, just broadly speaking, they took a group of uh, so many people in the study and they gave everybody. Uh, oh, and by, by the way, the study demonstrated that not only trauma survivors engage in hindsight bias, but pretty much everybody does. It's just like this big thinking error that happens a lot of the time. And usually it's not problematic, but when it comes to trauma, being in that habit, if hindsight bias thinking will cause a lot of problems. So in the study, they took a bunch of participants in the study, and they essentially gave every participant statistics on two football teams, like a red team and a blue team. And they said, okay, um, everybody, we're going to, they all have the same statistics. And if anybody in that study was like me, who doesn't really know much about football, um, they could still very easily see that these football teams were super even. The same wins and loss records, the same heights and weights. I mean, just very even teams. And what they did is they randomly assigned each participant to be in one of three different groups. 
Uh, and random assignment is a way to make really even groups in a study so that we get more valid results. Uh, and um, they put one group in, a, in, a, in like a, a, a hotel room and they said, go ahead and study up these statistics because after the football game, which you're not going to get to see, we're going to come in and we're going to ask you who you think won the game. And they put another group that was randomly assigned in a second room. And then they, and they told them the same instructions. And then they put a, the third group in a third room and gave them the exact same instructions. But once again, it was study up. You're not going to get to see the game. And after this football game, we're going to come and ask you who you think won. And so after the supposed football game, the researchers came walking into the room like two at a time. And they were kind of casually talking to each other. And as they walked in, one saying to the other, oh, uh, isn't it awesome that the red team just totally beat the blue team? Oh, and, and they, they said it so that the participants in the room could hear this. And then, they, and then they kind of said, oh, just disregard what we were just talking about. We're just having a casual conversation. And they asked the, the uh, study participants in the room who they think won the football game. And they got their answer. And then the researchers walked into the second room. And as they walked into that room, they said, isn't it awesome? The blue team just totally beat the red team. Oh, excuse us. Just disregard what we were just talking about. Who do you think won the football game? And they got their answer from that group. And then they walked into the third room, and they didn't say anything. And just when they walked in, they simply just asked, who do you think won the football game? And the results were really interesting. What, what do you think the group in the first room, uh, most of the people in the group in the first room said? Yeah, the, I think you said that. that was a, they, they were told that the red team won. Exactly so they, they right. They would predict that the red team won. That's right. The red team won. In the second room, the, most of the people said the, said the blue team won. And in the third room... Uh, it was about 50-50. Yeah. And so this, in a very simple way, demonstrated that just simply hearing outcome information or, or knowing or learning outcome information biases or distorts what one thought they knew before because we know that that third room who didn't get any outcome information, that's the control group in the study. And so they were split because the only information they had was what they were given, the statistics, which are very even. I mean, just like overly obviously even. So that was the main finding in that study, um, but there was also a surprise finding with hindsight bias, and it was that at the end of the study, and I always find this so interesting, at the end of the study, when the participants were being debriefed about what the study was about, they were told, did you know, they were told by the researchers, did you know that by us walking in the room and casually slipping up this outcome information, for example, saying, isn't it great the red team beat the blue team? Did you know that hearing that biased or distorted what you would have said if we had not said that as we were walking in the room? And the people in the first room said, oh, no, 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 no. We, we would, it's pretty, it's very clear. I mean, the, the red team would have won. We know that. I mean, you could have just walked in the room and said nothing. And the people in the second room said, oh, no, 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 no. The blue team, it's really clear. The blue team would, is the one that we think would have won. The right, games. so they had convictions about their beliefs, yeah, uh, that's right. which were completely influenced by the information. That's right. Yeah. So it not only it not only shows that hindsight bias tends to happen, but it shows how strong it tends to be, even when we're told that the outcome information biased us. You've done some work with uh, veterans, right? Yes. Yeah. So I'd just be really interested, maybe in one kind of example of how uh, hindsight bias plays out, because I, I know I, I I worked at the VA years ago, and I, I recall sure. a lot of those kinds of stories. Um, Sure. You're in a high-pressured situation like combat. Uh, there's a lot of information flying you at you in real time really quickly. So I'm assuming you see hindsight bias and foreseeability as a, playing a big role in that. Sure. We're, we're like, could you give an example? Yeah. Um, we've actually got an example in our, our book, actually, of a uh, veteran. Everybody who uh, in our book has given us permission to put their story in our book. This is a veteran who was a medic uh, in Vietnam and experienced a lot of guilt about doing something. And basically, this medic, there was a firefight that had happened, and the medic was attending to two or three seriously wounded uh, buddies, like in his unit there. And he could not, with his two hands, attend to all three of them. And bullets were still flying. The battle was still going on. And he looked over and saw a fellow U.S. soldier, uh, another buddy, and they made eye contact. And he gave him kind of a quick hand wave because he couldn't, you know, couldn't uh, speak with the noise that was going on, but kind of gave him a wave like, come on over, I need your help, kind of a wave. And that uh, soldier got up to come on over and in getting up got 
you know, standing up and running over, got shot and died. Oh, wow. And so this veteran had a tragic. lot, of, very, very tragic. Um, this veteran had a lot of guilt about simply the motion of waving his hand to wave his buddy over. Mm-hmm. So when we think about guilt being an unpleasant emotional experience, plus a belief that one self should have or could have thought, felt, or acted differently, this veteran had a lot of distress about this, understandably, mm-hmm. and had a belief that I shouldn't have waved my hand. It's a behavior I shouldn't have done. Right. And uh, and there's also thinking, uh, I, I should have known better than to do that. I, sh- I You know, I'm the medic. I should have dealt with these myself. So this is a perfect example of hindsight because had he known that his buddy was going to get shot when he got up to come over, he yeah. would never have asked him to come over. But he, obviously the, tra- the tragedy mm-hmm. happened and he had that information afterwards. He has the rest of his life to beat himself up for making that call. And at the time, he didn't have the information that it would end that way. That's exactly right. Um, you know, when I mentioned we do this guilt incident debriefing that we talked about a little a moment ago, in that story, after I hear that, I'll often ask the person, and when was the first time that you learned that you th- or that you thought it wasn't a good idea to wave your hand and, and call him over? And they'll say, well, as soon as I saw him shot, you know? And what that signals is that's after the fact information. Like, you know, you you can't use knowledge that the stock market went up on Wednesday for a certain stock to buy that stock on the Monday, two days before. That's the rational thinking process. You couldn't have possibly known. And if you did, you wouldn't have motioned them over. But it sounds like that it's so strong that it just overrides rationality and reason. No, I should have known better because it happened. That sometimes happens that way. Um, The emotional stuff will get in the way and it does take uh, some people more work to overcome that. Usually when that's happening, so for example, sometimes when that's happening, somebody will say, they'll say something like, logically and intellectually, I understand what you're saying, that that there's no way I could have known, but I, I still think that I should have. And usually what's happening in that situation is the person is remembering the event, which we're talking about in therapy, right? And it's so upsetting that they have all this strong emotion and they use the emotion or their brain will automatically use the emotion as evidence that what they're thinking must be true or accurate. And we call this emotional reasoning. Mm-hmm. Emotional reasoning is really coming to a conclusion and or making a decision based on emotion. So. Because I'm having the motion, it must mean that I did something wrong. Because yeah. otherwise, why would I be feeling this way? Yeah, that's right. If they're th- if they're thinking uh, if they're thinking I should have not waved him over, and he's at the same time really upset, the brain will tend to use the the fact that that emotion is very real, which it is. It's very real emotion. But the, the brain will tend to use that as a stamp or validation that what they're thinking must also be accurate or true. Why else would I be feeling this? Right. But when the reality, what I'm hearing is that the emotion is basically a result of the thoughts you're having. It's not causing the event to happen, but the emotion is being used as the validation that the thing that you're thinking is true. Right. Yeah, so that's right. that's a tough one. I, we're, I think we're sort of dancing around as we're talking about the foreseeability. Uh, we're dancing around a few of these other components that are related, and why don't we move on sure. to the next one? Did you say responsibility? Well, you, yeah, responsibility is another. Usually usually the next one that we'd work on would be um, ideas around lack of justification. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, so just, that? justification essentially means, uh, in the context of treating trauma-related guilt, is that the person will often think that they, had very, that they didn't have good reasons for doing what they did or what they didn't do. And, and by the way, hindsight bias that we were just talking about weaves through all the others almost always. Sure. It's so big. It's the reason we talk about that first. So with lack of justification, there's, oh, seven or eight or nine very common cognitive errors that come up when we're talking about lack of justification related to guilt. So, for example, one of them that is extremely common is that people will regularly compare what they did or what they didn't do against idealized options that weren't possible. So, you know, we hear stories in the news about a car that rolls on the freeway and the mom is able to climb out and lift the car off of a child that's pinned under the car and this sort of thing. And this is the kind of thing that people will compare, um, you know, in their trauma, they'll compare, well, I, 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 I should have been able to do that. And 
the reality is they weren't able to. We don't hear all the stories necessarily where the person wasn't able to pull the car off. Um, another, another justification-related thinking error is this idea that somebody compares what they did or what they didn't do with an option that only came to mind after the outcomes were known. For example, there was a, a journal article from years ago, and I think it was about 1991. I think it was Pittman et al., or the, the authors there. And in this article, there was a veteran that was doing something called prolonged exposure therapy. And the prolonged exposure therapy, the event that he chose to work on, was this combat, uh, this battle that happened in Vietnam where his gun, I think he was either out of ammunition or he, his gun was jammed and he was not able to shoot back at the enemy during this firefight. And because of that, his buddy that was kind of near him uh, got shot and died. And he had struggled with guilt and the effects of trauma for, for years after Vietnam until he got help. And I think it was the late 80s uh, that he was getting help. And it wasn't until he was in the therapist's office doing prolonged exposure. Uh, he's got his eyes closed. He's talking through the trauma in first person, present tense, lots of detail thoughts, sights, smells, everything. It wasn't until then, the very first time, that he realized that there was enemy dead, like literally at his feet. And he went into a suicidal depression because he started thinking, I should have just picked up one of their guns and I could have saved my friend's life. And this is a, this is a guy that at least he wasn't a client of mine or wasn't a patient of mine, but uh, in this journal article is described as spiraling into the suicidal depression because of his guilt that he didn't pick up one of these guns and, and perhaps uh, could have, in his mind, saved his friend's life. If he were my client, I, I would work on the guilt with him. And one of the things we'd talk about is, well, when, when did it first occur to you to pick up one of these enemy rifles? And he'd say, well, right there in that therapy, in that prolonged exposure therapy. So he's comparing what he did, which was not picking up an enemy rifle, with this memory or, the, or this image or this thought that only came to mind many years later, which is technically an inaccuracy and is only going to serve to feed his guilt. What you're saying is that it wasn't really an option for him because at the time he didn't know that the gun and the ammunition was there. That's right. Otherwise he would have picked it up. That's right. That's and right. So, so to beat up on yourself and blame yourself for not taking a course of action that you didn't know existed at the time would be an example of that cognitive error. That's yeah. exactly right. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, let's hear about some more. So, for example, another justification-related thinking error is this belief that somehow during the trauma... Well, it, basically, let me say it this way. It's a failure to realize that during a trauma, there's no time to evaluate all the options. It's, it's not like in domestic violence, a boyfriend is beating up his girlfriend or a husband is beating up his wife, that she's going to be able to, you know, give the timeout signal and go, okay, hold on for a second here. I just want to consider all my options. Do I jump out the window or do I call the 911 or do I just run out into the street and scream? You know, there's no time to contemplate all those options. And yet after the fact, people regularly forget that right. and they beat themselves up thinking that they should have or could have done something else like call 911 or run mm -hmm. out in the street or whatever. When the reality is in this situation, there wasn't, it wasn't the option of ex extended uh, consideration of all the options. That sounds similar to the last one. Basically, there not being an option, that's one error. And also related to that, not recognizing that there wasn't time to consider the options, which makes it not an option. Because if you don't have the time to be yeah. consciously aware that there's five options in front of you because you're in crisis danger mode, um, right. I, I'm, I'm guessing most people, they pick the first option they see. And in hindsight, they could look back and say, there might have been a better option, but that was the one I saw at the time and I took it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you've actually just mentioned yet another one, which is when somebody's in danger slash crisis mode, their arousal is ramped up, which means their performance is generally going to be down. And so thinking clarity is not going to be as sharp as it might be in some other situations. Sometimes it's real sharp depending on the trauma and other times it's not, but a lot of times it's not. Uh, and so all those options aren't presented, at least in their, in their mind. Also, a particular person, what they did or didn't do in a trauma, um, often multiple, several if not more of these justification-related thinking errors apply to one trauma. It's not like it just has to be one. It's, it's often multiple ones. Got it. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about responsibility. What's that about? Responsibility uh, is, is, a, is a component of guilt, trauma-related guilt. And we talk about, essentially people when they've experienced traumas, they often will overestimate the percentage of responsibility that they have for the negative outcomes. 
And so we assess this um, not only by asking them what percentage they think they're responsible for the outcome, but also, you know, are you, are you, are you slightly, are you moderately, are you extremely responsible, this sort of thing. And people almost always put like very high numbers. Yeah, I'm 100% responsible. I'm 80% responsible for the negative outcome. And so when we talk about responsibility, and you know, there's different ways to talk about responsibility. There's responsibility, responsibility is accountability, which we, we talk about a little bit later on when we're doing some of the guilt work. But initially, we often approach it in sort of the form of causal factors. So we can think about, um, for example, gravity. Gravity is a causal factor that can cause things to happen. Uh, what makes this pen drop? Okay, gravity makes the pen drop. But we, we don't talk about whether it's a good thing or bad thing. We don't put any valuation or, or blame or judgment on anything. We're just talking causal factors. So when we look at gravity, for example, just as if we were to put blame on it, which we don't, but if we were, we could say, okay, is gravity a good thing or a bad thing? You know, well, I mean, I guess it can be both, right? If grav- gravity might be a good thing, if it keeps all of us on Earth from flying into outer space, but it's a bad thing when it makes a plane crash and people die. So we try to just steer clear of all that and instead talk about it as simply causal factors. What makes the light in this room go on? So it sounds like a person is taking a, an overwhelming amount of responsibility for an event occurring but there are other factors that are involved with the outcome of an event. Big time. And, um, you know, I think it'd really help to get like an example, like how this might play out uh, with a patient in a session, like what kinds of causal factors are usually present and where is a person's responsibility play into that? Sure. So, um, for example, a very, very common thinking error that we hear, uh, I mean, a a guilt issue that I hear in my practice is I should have left sooner. You know, when I'm meeting, working with formerly battered women, I should have left sooner, whether it was months earlier or years earlier or whatever. And the negative outcome, we could say, is many negative outcomes, but one of them that I commonly hear is, okay, there's, neg- there's been negative effects on the children. This has affected the children. So my client who's thinking, you know, that she should have left sooner will often take 100% responsibility for the outcome, in this case, the negative effects, the problems that children are having in school because of witnessing the violence, domestic violence in the home, and this sort of thing. So when we, when we know that every single outcome, or pretty much every single outcome in the world for most of the things that we have in our world, have many, 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 many causes that lead to that outcome, we can make a list of um, what those causal factors are. And when we do that, and then assign rough percentages to them, we start to see together in, in therapy that you know, she was just one domino in a very long chain of dominoes that lead to the final domino falling off the edge of the table. Can I take a guess at what some of the dominoes might be? Please do. So one domino is the guy in the relationship. You're exactly right. And it never amazes me anymore and always amazes me when I hear this is that when we make a list of causal factors, guess what? Probably 80% of my clients never put on that list. The guy. Exactly right. They'll, they'll say all these other things. Go ahead and guess some more. Yeah. Well, I just wanted just to follow up on that. So I, I, I'm sure there could be any number of reasons why I should say the guy, the partner, whether it's mm-hmm. a female, male in the relationship, the other person is uh, threatening the person mm-hmm. not to leave the relationship. Otherwise, I'll hurt you. I'll, I'll withhold money from you. Uh, I'll hurt your family. I'll publicly mm-hmm. humiliate you. If you leave, I'll kill myself and your children will be without a father. So there's responsibility there. There's responsibility in the kids. And again, not to blame the kids, but to say the kids are there and the person might make the decision not to leave because that person thinks that the kids would be worse off if she wasn't there in the relationship responsibility of uh, mom and dad saying you never leave your husband because that's wrong other things but I'm, I'm guessing those are all factors that play into a person's decision that's exactly right yeah that, and there's many 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 usually we'll come up with 15 to 20 yeah. something like that and then assign percentages to them uh, just sort of estimate percentages and usually the, when we add all those percentages up, we come up with something that's, you know, in the range of a thousand or more yeah. percent, which means that their 80 percent 
uh, and that thousand percent, for example, something's got to change. It's all got to fit into 100% because we know a negative outcome can only be 100% caused. And I, I want to just, um, based on what you were just saying, I want to just, uh, again, reiterate that by no means this sort of thinking about it as causal factors uh, at all like she caused the domestic violence. Simply what we mean is she was, you know, she was a warm body that was there that was behaving and acting and 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 whatever in 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 a way that any human being would act. It's not like she's trying to, she's not she's not to blame. Right, but, but exactly, and and I think I think the point here is that she's blaming herself. Exactly. Right. I'm responsible. Right. Just because I was here and I and I stayed. Right. And the fact of the matter is, there's all these other factors. You're saying 15 to 20 with most people who you come up with, who we can find 15 to 20 other factors that cause this person to, to stay and stay oh, yeah. and not leave. Yeah. In, in the interest of time, we usually come up to 15 to 20, but regularly, you know, if we wanted to spend 10 years coming up with a list, we could come up with potentially millions of reasons that a person stays. Right. I mean, there's just many, many, many reasons from societal messages to media to no place to go to the fact that males get paid more than uh, females for the same kind of jobs, and so it's harder economically. I mean, there's on and on and sure. on. There's many, many, many reasons uh, that lead uh, into an outcome like that. I'd like to get back for a moment. I, I'm really fascinated with this idea about accountability. It sounds like um, responsibility, I always thought was a very strange word in English. I don't know if other languages have this issue. But in English, it, it sort of means, I think, two different things to people. It means like, I was responsible because that was my assigned or designated role. I was responsible for these kids because I was taking them on an outing and my role was to be responsible for them. And there's a responsibility in terms of like a causality mechanism. I was responsible for that light turning on and off because I turned the switch. And I'm, I'm wondering, does, does that, those two different definitions of responsibility kind of make it difficult for people to understand this? That doesn't usually make it difficult for them to understand. We talk about both of them. So the, the causal one would be like the light switch, you know, what causes the light to go on? I, I, was, I, I turned it on, you know, uh, we go, can all go all the way back to that light went on because of dinosaurs that turned into fossil fuels in the ground millions of years ago. Um, when we look at responsibilities, accountability, you're right, we're looking more like, you know, you're in charge of these children or you're in... I know I've had situations before where I've had patients where, um, let's just say they, they have a teenager and something happens to the teenager. Let's say the teenager's in a drunk driving accident mm -hmm. or something happens to them and the parent is feeling extremely guilty, as I'm sure just about any parent would until they got excellent, uh, excellent therapy for it from you, no doubt. Um, <laughs> But they're feeling guilty, and one thing they're saying is, it's my fault, I was responsible for him because I'm the parent. Right, right. We'd look at that um, with regard to responsibility. We'd look at the what thinking errors might be going on with the causal responsibility, but also with the accountable responsibility. So for example, I could say, hey, uh, Aaron, there's this great job, it pays $500,000 a year, and I wanna hire you for it, and you're going to be accountable for your team of people. And your only duty in this job, your only responsibility in this job is that you are accountable for making sure that all 10 people under you show up by 8 a.m. and don't leave the office until before 4.30 uh, in the afternoon or early evening. And that's all, that's all you have to do is make sure all 10 people show up by 8 a.m. and they don't leave before 4.30. And you're accountable for that. That's how you get paid, right? You're 500000 And so you, that's, a, that's a nice thing to say and stuff, but you can't control all the myriad of factors that affect whether each person is able to show up or not. I mean, somebody could just have a fender bender on the freeway on the way into work, and you can't be accountable you know, in this way. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you could hire a van and go around and pick everybody up in the morning and make sure they get to work on time. But somebody else could hit the van that you're all in. And I mean, you just, it's an error to believe that one can control all the variables that affect outcomes. Right. And that's I, the accountability part that people get mixed up on. Yeah. And, and I imagine similar to that, you, you're getting paid $500,000 a year to manage 20 stockbrokers and uh, they're expecting you and your team to make a ton of money for their company, and there's a stock market crash, <laughs> and you lose a ton of money, and you were responsible for managing the team and doing the best you could, 
but you can't be responsible for losing a ton of money under a circumstance like a stock market crash. Oh, that's right. So, yeah. you know. And causes a lot of guilt, feeds, feeds into a lot of guilt. For right. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the next one I think you said was wrongdoing. Yeah, wrongdoing is a, a fourth theory that we often work on. There's several different ways to look at wrongdoing, but wrongdoing is essentially the idea that what the person did or didn't do, in other words, their sort of actions or roles or beliefs or feelings in the traumatic event um, that's in doing or having their experience or their role that they've somehow violated their personal standards of right and wrong or their, their morals. Uh, and it's a pretty common component of trauma-related guilt. So yeah, let's hear, do you have maybe an example of that you could share? Yeah, there was an example that was on one of the talk shows many years ago, and it was a, uh, a dad was on this talk show, and he was talking about his 16-year-old daughter who had her 16th birthday at home, and it was a family birthday party, and they celebrated and everything. And then after the family birthday party, which ended kind of early at home, um, some older friends wanted to take her out and celebrate uh, her 16th birthday. And so they picked her up and they took her out and they introduced her to alcohol. It was the first time she'd ever had alcohol and she didn't realize how powerful it can be and that there's a bit of a lag when you, from when you drink it to when you feel the effects. And she just drank and drank and drank and they kept feeding her drinks. And they got really, really drunk and they brought her home. They dropped her off. She crawled up the front yard. Her dad opened the door. He was pretty unhappy about this, of course. She's throwing up, this sort of thing. Uh, really, really drunk. And he wanted to talk with her about this, but because he didn't want to ruin his beloved daughter's 16th birthday and upset her by, you know, getting on her back about, hey, this is not an okay thing to do and that sort of thing. And also because she wasn't going to understand it anyway, because she was super drunk, he simply just escorted her, helped her get into her bedroom and let her sleep it off. And um, unfortunately, the next morning when uh, she wasn't showing up at the breakfast table with the family, he, you know, or even midday, I think it was, I forget exactly the timing, but he went in to uh, wake her up and found that she had, had actually died. Ugh. Yeah, right. Tragic for yeah. sure. Um, and so he was uh, sitting on this talk show um, talking about this and with a lot of guilt. And he, this is an actual quote from him. Uh, which highlights how inaccurate uh, the, the thinking around this is. But he actually said, I have to live with myself for the rest of my life knowing that I murdered my daughter. Mm. And yet we know this isn't murder. Mm-hmm. We know that if he had any inkling that she was not going to wake up the next morning, he absolutely would have not put her into her bedroom. He would have taken her to like, the emergency room of and had course. her stomach pumped or something like this. Yeah. But he's concluding wrongdoing based on a tragic negative outcome, which is one of the common thinking errors in wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. There's other thinking errors too. There's other two very common ones. And one of the, the simpler ones is that, you know, wrongdoing is really only applicable when somebody intends the negative outcome. Bad things happen all the time, but that's just kind of part of life. I sort of call it, refer to it as sort of the bumper cars of life. We, we just, you know, stuff is going to happen and it's still tragic and uh, and upsetting, uh, and sometimes very, very big, like a loved one passing away, like in his case. But he didn't intend this negative outcome, so he can't be accused of wrongdoing. Right. And, um, yeah, definitely, um, that's a tragic example that you're you're giving. And, obviously, a parent's, like, absolute worst nightmare, and the last thing on earth he would ever, ever want to have happen to his daughter. And, you know, it, it reminds me of, like, again, going back to combat, experiences like all these great movies about war and combat uh, just I think bring up this idea of just the blurry boundaries of morality that people find themselves in in those kinds of situations and I'm wondering like you've probably seen this concept of wrongdoing come up in combat-related trauma, combat experiences. Yes, um, in combat experiences, uh, it's particularly we see a a third way of looking at wrongdoing is what we sort of refer to sometimes as the Sophie's Choice thinking error uh, or the Sophie's Choice-related wrongdoing. And that's basically this idea that when no good options um, are available, the least bad option is a highly moral and highly uh, valued option. So, for example, in combat, sometimes people join the military, for example, not because they want to go out and be fighting and that sort of thing. They join the military because they want to put food on the table for their family, and it's a really reasonable thing to do. They support their country, you know, but they, you know, they prefer to maybe be behind the scenes and uh, doing something like that, but invariably they find themselves in actual combat sometimes, and let's say a a firefight happens, 
and people are down, and the, the, the veteran who was active duty at the time didn't necessarily want to be shooting at people, but the options in that moment are either start shooting and kill or be killed. Yeah, so I, I imagine that with uh, folks in the military and people in combat, very, very few of them are going and saying, I can't wait to go shoot people, right? They're, they're going in saying, uh, I, I'm, I'm here to perform an action for my country. I have reasons for doing this. And then they find themselves in a situation where they have to make a decision. Mm-hmm. And I like what you said, no good option. So I have these options in front of me. None of them are going to make me feel good when I, when I take it. Mm-hmm. So I have to pick the one that is the least bad of them. But you're saying that even to choosing the least bad option, if it's not a good option, or not something that somebody would ever choose to do if they had a choice not to do it, they end up feeling wrongdoing because of it. That's right. That's right. And it's, it's, it plays out regularly with formerly battered women. It's one of the main reasons that formerly battered women don't leave an abusive relationship and, and family and friends have a hard time understanding this a lot of them. They often just say, well, why don't you just leave? You know, And yet if you're in her shoes, leaving, when they think about leaving, they're reminded of, a woman is reminded of what he's said many times, which is if you leave, I'll hunt you down and kill you. And that's going to bring up so much fear that of course it makes sense to stay and just endure the abuse you know, with, right? It's the least bad. It's the least bad exactly option. Right. If exactly I stay, right. I've got to deal with him. But maybe I can minimize yeah. the unpleasantness. If I if I do X, Y, and Z, I can try. But that's a lot better than him hunting me down and killing me or my kids mm-hmm. or whatever. I mean, it's really just a no-win situation. So she's choosing the least bad of the options in front of her. Makes sense. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So Tyler, I'm really interested in hearing a little bit more about. The Sophie's Choice uh, concept, you had mentioned that, and about wrongdoing. And can you give a bit of a more of an example? We could just cite the film Sophie's Choice, but you probably have other examples that you've encountered or heard about that would uh, highlight that. Uh, Sure, yeah. I I could give you many examples. One of them that comes to mind... um, I, interestingly enough, is is one that was also Sophie's Choice. The movie was set in uh, around World War II, and uh, there was another example, a, a very um, tragic and disturbing example that I had once seen on a some kind of a television show. I think it was like a History Channel show where a um, elderly gentleman who was a survivor of the Holocaust was being interviewed, and he was talking about his experience in the camp that he was in the Holocaust camp um, and he had a, a job that in the camp and his job in the camp was to essentially put dead bodies into uh, an incinerator oh. yeah very very tragic very yeah. horrific and he was doing this and there's Nazi officers all around making sure he does his job and this one particular body um, that he was going to put into the incinerator, this dead person that he was going to put into the incinerator, as he was starting to put him in, the body kind of slightly moved and said, don't. Oh, my gosh. I'm I'm still alive. And and it shocked him, and he just, he stopped, and he kind of looked around and looked at the Nazi officer that was near him and said, you know, I can't put this gentleman in. He needs some help. He's still alive. I I can't do this. This would be, um, you know, not okay. I can't do this. And the Nazi officer, obviously extremely cruelly as they were, said, put him in or you're both going to go in. Mm-hmm. And so the gentleman put mm-hmm. him in. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, a, it's a classic example of only bad choices. Right. And choosing the least bad choice is actually a, a valued or, or moral choice. And in this case, we can. Uh, it seems fairly easy to assume that the gentleman that was being put in was so close to death he probably wasn't going to make it anyway so it's either going to be one life lost or two lives lost right and, and as, as you've said in the turns you, out you've, you've 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 said also that um you're you're in the heat of the moment there right you're having to make a decision right you know uh there there could be some other i mean we've got a one we, he's got two choices in front of him that he's trying to choose which is the least bad one and he's got a nazi officer pointing a gun to his head right uh and so there might be other options he could think about down the road but at that moment there are two 
and he's got to pick the least bad one. What a, what a horrible predicament to be in. Very horrible. And, and as we know, he, he lived. He, he made it through it all, and, he, and he, it would have been two people dead had he resisted that. Did you uh, hear anything about what happened to him later? Like, was he, how did he process or deal with that experience later in his life? I don't know the details of it, because as I mentioned, it was on like a History Channel show or something like that, but yeah. he, it was clear that he had immense guilt. And I do, um, I, I, was, I saw it before I was a psychologist, but uh, being a psychologist who works with trauma and guilt, I, I would have loved the opportunity to assist with this uh, gentleman having a less guilt-ridden experience of life. Sure, and you'd be addressing yeah. that very issue. You made yeah. the best decision that you could under the circumstances with only limited choices available to you. If there was one piece of advice or guidance you could give on this issue of guilt and trauma-related guilt, what would that be? I don't know if this counts as that, but something I regularly say in my therapy to clients when we're working on guilt in particular is if they remember nothing else, if they remember nothing else about all the therapy that we do, remember the concept of hindsight bias and how not to fall prey to it. So. Yeah, that's a huge piece of this model, clearly, and it just permeates all of the other aspects of guilt you talked about. I think in every one of those components of guilt, hindsight bias played a role. Well, like I mentioned earlier, the, the, the hindsight bias tends to feed through all of the other thinking error, uh, cognitive areas. Uh, it fe feeds into the lack of justification, the responsibility, and the wrongdoing. And so we work on that one first, and um, often with guilt, we'll, we'll work on one specific guilt issue uh, until that's resolved or, great, or the guilt is greatly diminished. And, and then sometimes we'll go on to a second or third guilt issue, but usually after one, a lot of clients will be able to apply the same kind of thinking with practice to other guilt issues. And some clients have you know many years and a lot of traumas and a lot of guilt. And it's, it's wonderful to see them be able to apply uh, this kind of healthy thinking to and accurate thinking really is what it is it's accurate thinking uh apply it to all these other traumas in their life and start to um go through life you know they'll still have the sadness about what's happened but that can be grieved like we talked like we started talking about at the beginning of this conversation is that once the guilt is out of the way the sadness can be grieved mm -hmm. and it is these are sad outcomes a lot of times there's losses and stuff but there will be an end to that grieving and once that grieving is done then they're they're really starting to move on yeah, even even more so with their life and that's wonderful to see in them it sure is um so that's interesting what you're saying that a, a person could have just multiple traumatic experiences in their life just many many things that happened to them but if they work through just one traumatic experience, that could have an effect on how they're feeling about many of the other ones. Yes, yeah. And then we start to see depression lift. You know, we start to see self-esteem self improve. We start to see anxiety going down. We start to see increases in assertiveness sometimes. And, you know, especially when we teach uh, assertiveness skills and some of these things, it really has an effect on all these other areas. So, Tyler, on the hindsight bias, do you have an example of what it would look like if somebody had experienced something that could be traumatic and was able to deal with it in a way that didn't cause them to feel guilty. I can give you an example. Um, one was President uh, Truman, um, who was president of the United States at the end of World War II. And uh, World War II ended largely for the U.S. with the dropping of some big bombs on Japan, which were very tragic, and there was lots of lots of death and destruction. And of course, the bombs weren't dropped just on the military base. They were dropped on like the city, Hiroshima, for right. example. Uh, so that was grandmothers and kittens and newlyweds yeah. and babies and everybody. Uh, it was very, very tragic. And yet, President Truman was n apparently not really experiencing much guilt about making the decision to order the dropping of those bombs. And one has to kind of wonder, well, why? Right. And he was known to be very decisive and stuff, but hmm, what, what was going on with this? So his kind of thinking that led to not much guilt was evidenced in his response that he gave at a press conference to a reporter after the war was over. After the war was over, the reporter said, hey, President Truman, was this a good idea to drop these bombs? You know, would you do this again? And he paused and he said, well... Knowing back in 1945 what I know today, maybe I would and maybe I wouldn't. I'd have to give it a whole lot of thought. But knowing today, only what I knew back in 1945 when I made that decision, I would do exactly the same thing. 
And, and it really, his, his short answer like that, that was his answer. It really illustrates that he was able to very, uh, he was very good at keeping boundaries on what he knew at any particular time, what he knew and what he was able to do at any particular time. And he didn't weave in information after the fact into his pre-outcome knowledge. Nothing like that had ever been done in the world before. And you can imagine if he was looking at those photos after Hiroshima was bombed, uh, he'd probably be experiencing a lot of guilt, or most people probably be experiencing a lot of guilt, and yet he, he wasn't, and we think it's because of his thinking. Right, or if he had those photos prior to make the, making the decision, he might not have chosen to make the decision. Maybe. He was known to be actually very dis, um, thoughtful and take a long time deliberating about which way to go and things, and yet once he made his decision, he was also known to be very decisive and not, not second-guess and not look back, and you know, which is strength. Right. So, Tyler, thank you so much for coming in. This was super interesting and really, really educational and insightful. Um, I really think that uh, listeners will uh, really benefit and enjoy from the conversation. Uh, Dr. Tyler Ralston, clinical psychologist in Honolulu, Hawaii, uh, will have a link to um, your book and to your practice uh, on my website, which is www.waikikihealth.com. Podcast will be posted there along with the blog and uh, information about Dr. Ralston and his practice. Tyler, thanks so much for coming in. It's been great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, please go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Please be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks Podcast and accompanying blog to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please be sure to follow Mind Tricks on Facebook by following and liking posts by myself, your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Music